Welcome to the Manol 100 Centenary Podcast, part of the Decade of Centenaries program. In this, the third in our series, looking at the events of 100 years ago, this decade of centenaries, I'm Sinead McCool, and I ask you to join me as we meet four contemporary songwriters asked to write centenary songs. Responding to the events when members of the Second Dáil Éireann gathered to decide to reject or accept terms when the Articles of Agreement for a Treaty with Great Britain and Ireland were debated in Aylesford Terrace, Dublin. The building in which they will perform and where we meet today is in a piece of neat serendipity, our National Concert Hall. The ideal venue to remember this moment in our history through the medium of music and lyrics. Through the songwriters, it's possible to come to know some of those who took part in these events in a way that the ballad always has been part of the Irish lexicon of expression. The artists we will meet have all come from different places in Ireland. They are Karen Casey, John Spillane. We come in the wind. We live in the wind. We come in the wind. We live in the wind. Gemma Dunleavy. Maya Sophia. Hi, my name is Karen Casey. Um, I'm a singer, mostly a folk singer um, and a traditional singer, I suppose. And I've uh, made 11 albums to date, and I suppose. I love traditional song for the kind of parallel narrative that it often is within Irish history. Karen belongs to a long tradition of Irish folk singers, song collectors, including the late Frank Hart. She counts among her friends music historians, keepers and archivists of the musical tradition such as Terry Moylan. Do you know I'm a proud folk singer also very connected to Frank Hart, who would have said, you know, those in power write the history, those who suffer write the songs. And I think that's very, very evident. There are very few uh, pro-treaty songs. Um, you know, I was on to Terry Moylan looking for, uh, well, songs about women, and he was absolutely brilliant. He does have an amazing book, The Indignant Muse. It's just a wealth of uh, information, and he got a lot of songs that had been suppressed, really, for years. And so I'm I'm very conscious, yes, of how important uh, these songs are. I mean, I'd be like that about all songs, and I think they're a valve or a release, or a way for people who don't generally have a voice. Karen Casey has always been intrigued by the way songs narrate Irish history. I was asked a couple of years ago in UCC to take an adult learning um, class in the evenings, and I decided kind of ambitiously to tell the, the history of Ireland through song. And when, as I was going down through all the different songs I had learnt, I kind of, as the weeks went on, I panicked a bit and kind of said, where are the women and where are the songs about the women? So I suppose with the centenary uh, celebrations, I have been searching and kind of carrying out my own little 
investigation as to, you know, what songs we have by or about women. So I suppose I often think of those women and what their lives were like. Karen Casey's great-grandparents were active in the revolutionary period. Her great-grandfather's history is recorded on a plaque on his home place, a fine building that's on the National Building Register. The inscription on the plaque starts in the Irish language. Padraig O'Rean, 1881-1933. And then it goes into English and it, it says Patrick Ryan was one of those arrested and jailed after the failed rising in Limerick. He had to go on the run during the War of Independence, but was arrested and jailed, first in Cork and then in Wormwood Scrubs Jail, England, where he went on hunger strike along with other prisoners in the year 1920. Packy, as he was known, took the Republican side in the Civil War and was again arrested in 1922. The continuous hardship impaired his health and took him to an early grave. He died from pneumonia in February 1933. Packy Ryan's home was open to all Republicans. But I started... I suppose discovering this whole history about him and then his wife, Agnes, my great-grandmother, and they had 12 children. There was a lot about Packy, but not so much about Agnes. But every time I kind of asked about her, kind of an apparition would appear in the room. You know, there was a whole story of uh, one of the times he had overheard the Black and Tans say that there was going to be an order out on all the rinds of the hotel. M men, all the males, regardless of age, were all going to be shot. So she kind of had a forewarning and she dressed Willie, the eldest boy, up in a dress. And my aunts were like, oh, there was something about Willie in a dress. And, you know, she was there with her kids, getting them all out of the house. So I, be I began to think about that a lot and also about your whole house being destroyed. You know, all the furniture was put out on the street. Um, there's bullet holes still in the walls. There was a story of her being brought down and her eyelashes burnt or singed with a candle when they were trying to get information from her as to the whereabouts of her husband who was on the run. And he, you know, he really did dedicate a lot of his life to the cause. He was gone, he was in Wormwood Scrubs, he was on hunger strike. And so that whole, I just, you know, trying to imagine what her life was like, how she coped with that. I found all of that really hard to put in the one song. They lost their eldest daughter, Bridgine, after the Black and Tan uh, commandeered their house. And also, Packy's mother died as well. Well, I sing you a bit of the one for Agnes. She wore in her care that day at the fair when Agnes O'Dwyer was standing there her hair sang like the night it wound the stars so bright and oh she had the will of the wild, wild birds. Oh, she had the will of the wild birds. She sang, Ireland all free will never be at peace. Ireland all free sleep 
I'm no friend of the crown, and I will never bow down. Gemma Dunleavy is a singer, songwriter and producer from the North Wall, Dublin One. I released an EP last year called Up The Flat, which was predominantly a collection of songs to tell the story of my community in Cherry And I've been gigging and performing and recording for the last year, kind of off the back of that and trying to further spread those stories to people who might not know about our community or might know about it um, from probably a, a source that we don't feel um, tells the full uh, picture of our community and our story and our history. I was never gonna move for you. See, I enjoy the blue lights flashing through the night till you come around. Gemma Dunleavy's work was described by Una Mullally in the Irish Times as self made, wide ranging artist storytelling. Gemma recently won one of the coveted Markovitz Bursary Awards and she was selected earlier this year as one of the acts to be championed as part of the Rising Initiative. But as Malali points out in her newspaper article, Gemma Dunleavy has been rising for a while. This producer, poet, trained dancer has been a performer from an early age. I always know from early on, I loved singing and I also hated injustice and loved to tell stories, you know. That was something that I always knew from very, very young. And looking at, like, me, me elders who tell me stories about me, that's very kind of evident. So I think the combination of that bled into songwriting somehow, you know. Gemma, in her blog, writes she is from Sheriff Street and she says she's born, bred and buttered. She said she wanted to write up the flats to document her community, now as a time capsule, as the city is changing and as she describes the place she grew up in is now being replaced by capital-funded projects. In the music video, made by Rosie Barrett, her cast is of friends and family, which I note is predominantly populated by young women and girls. I come from a family of extremely strong women. Anybody knows that inner city communities, especially around the docks, held up by women because the men were out on the boats kind of eight months a year, you know? So for me, I come from a family of dressmakers, right? So I feel a real sense of, you know, everything was in their hands, both metaphorically and, and literally. Any chance that I get to read about or find out about the women in Ireland especially and the stuff that they have held up, the stuff that we kind of should be singing from the rooftops about, but a lot of the times you have to look for it. That to me is, it's really important to have that there, to have sources um, of information to educate us about that, to educate our young children about that especially. Personally, I grew up never thinking of women as victims. Like, I grew up with two nannies who kind of raised the house. All my aunties kind of had a hand in raising me. You know, it was never, oh, God loved them, or it was never any of that. It was just the women were always the ones that picked up the pieces, and they were always the ones that I expected to pick up the pieces more than the men, you know what I mean? And it wasn't because it was they were the only ones around. It was because they were the best people for the job. There's a plaque on the wall of the Rotunda Hospital commemorating her grandmother. She was made an honorary midwife, having delivered hundreds of babies born in the heart of Dublin City. 
she was not trained or anything. She just was living in the tenements and when women would have babies, they would knock in because I think word got around she delivered one baby and she became known. Uh, she's, her name was the Granny Dunleavy and she protected loads of women in the Monto, a lot of the sex workers and stuff who were being abused by the so-called pimps and stuff of the time and she helped them kind of find homes for their babies or find homes for themselves. And, you know, I feel like she really has travelled through the DNA of her family because I look at me nieces now when I I see bits of the resilience in them and I see the stubbornness that will probably go on to get them the jobs that they want or the places that they want. I'm very grateful that I've, I kind of grew up never seeing women as the victims until you step back and look at the broader picture and you hear other stories and other people's experiences, you know. Hello, my name is John Spillane and I'm a musician, songwriter and singer from Cork City um, and I write kind of contemporary folk um, songs which are in the Irish tradition. Sean O'Shea, now, who's a, you know, an, elder, an elder statesman of Irish traditional music, has always said that of all the national musics of all the nations in the world, Ireland has the greatest repertoire. You know, so it's a boast, but how true it is hasn't been measured. But definitely there's a very a rich folk tradition of music, of traditional music and of song and balladry in this country. And I see myself as, um, as a part of that and um, I love it. John Spillane's writing is woven into the fabric of the National Songbook. His songs focus on place and he has an ability, both in English and the Irish language, to write songs that seem to have always existed. The National Concert Hall Commission will be another part of his contribution to this decade of centenaries. So, um, you know, when I heard about the Commission, I was just really delighted, you know, because it was work I was kind of doing already anyway. You know, I had written a Tomás McCurtain song, two Tomás McCurtain songs, so I've been into the centenary vibe already. I discovered that so many of those famous big Irish ballads um, were actually reworkings of earlier songs, that the ballad is a fluid form, and um, also that the great 1798 songs were written in 1898, like Kelly the Boy from Calan, the Croppy Boy and Boule Vogue. So like this was a huge revelation and it was huge to me to discover how big 1898 was and how much 1898 contributed to 1916. But my Tomás McCurtain song, I used this idea of reworking old ballads. And I'm, I'm a big fan of a, a collection of ballads called the Child Ballads, which were published by Francis James Child in England in the 1860s, where he went around England and Scotland and collected a lot of old ballads and um, many of them have been reworked. So I took one called The False Night on the Road, and I moved The False Night on the Road, which is a Scottishy English ballad where a young kid on his way to school encounters a false knight who is the devil in disguise. And there's a series of riddles exchanged, which the child has to cor- answer correctly and outwit the devil and not move from the spot, which is a kind of a magical circle. So it's a very dark song. But I moved it to Moran Abbey, uh, where Thomas McCurtain went to school, because... The Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller are meant to have been in Moran Abbey since the time of the Crusades. You know, and they're in Limerick as well, in hospital in Limerick, it's the Knights Hospitaller. So the idea of the Knights being in the very place where he went to school, um, you know, it, it allowed me to write, write a kind of a Star Wars-like prequel to um, his life in that he meets the false knight as a child. So how successful it is as a ballad is interesting because I don't think anybody hardly knows the false knight. You know, in Ireland, you know, it's not a well-known ballad or anything. I think in Scotland it would be much white, more widely known. So um, it's quite an ambitious, folky rewrite. So that's where I started with um, Tomás McCurtain. Young Tomás McCurtain On his way to school Met a false night on the road False night, false night On the old mallow road On the Abbey, down by the broken castle on a hill, 
Set a false night on the roll. I am going to my school. Said the child, and he stood, and he stood, and he stood, and twas well that he stood down by the broken castle on the hill. Then I wrote another song about him called Unridgeridov, which is the Black Knight, which is a, the same thing really. But it, it refers to McCurtain being a timber. He was an Irish language teacher going around on a bicycle around, you know, the small communities of North Cork and teaching Irish and being chased by this uh, spectral presence, which is the Black Knight, which represents really the Knights Hospitaller, the Knights Templar and basically the British Empire. You know, they go back to the reign of King John. You know, there was a lot of talk in the treaty debates about, you know, the 700 years and the 800 years. But um. You know, when I started reading the debates first, Sinead, I was very struck by the language thing, how they all start in Irish and they switch into English, how they all say, I wish everyone could speak Irish. Um, there's a lot of very rich material there, which is very poignant and very sad now, really, because so much of the revolution came from Conor Nagoelga. My name is Maya Sophia. I made an album in 2019 called Bath Time, which was kind of a really personal album but also a lot of the songs were about different women throughout history that I had taken my interest and I inserted their stories into my songs. Yeah, that's me. Maya Sophia won a New Generation Award. She's still in her 20s, yet she writes with the wisdom belying her years of the ideals of womanhood, of the patriarchal structure. Writing, she believes, is an instinctual urge. Well, I've been writing in one form or another for as long as I can remember. When I was a teenager, maybe like 16, 17, I started writing songs. I studied English because I liked writing and I didn't know I didn't know what kind of form I was going to focus on. And then for some reason, songwriting became the form that I, I felt most comfortable working within. Maya Sophia's ability as a songwriter has been noted by the Cognoscenti and has led her to gaining this commission to write a song about one of the members of the Second Doyle, who came to debate the Articles of Agreement for a treaty with Great Britain and Ireland. I thought about it and was like, actually, I'd love to do this. This is like my dream, my dream job. I've always been interested in history and I think it's my my interest in stories and mysteries. I think, I think history is full of gaps, obviously, and, and those gaps are are often gendered or, you know, other marginalised spaces. I've done some work with in archives looking at histories that have been kind of left out of mainstream narratives and I'm interested in the silences and, and why those silences are there. I suppose women's histories have been something that I've been really interested in for years and I think there's still so much that we don't, we haven't explored or we haven't brought out into the light of day. And especially in Ireland, like, women's voices still have to be so much louder to be heard. And there's so much in our history that we, we, we owe the women of our past here their stories to be brought into the light, I think, if that makes sense. A lot of people are singing Down in the Glen, which I wrote actually for Julia Grennan and Elizabeth O'Farrell. And it was because I discovered that Julia Grennan was in the GPO with Connolly and Elizabeth Farrell went out to surrender. And I have it in my head that they were lovers. And so the, what the song is about is how Julia would have felt as Elizabeth was going out to surrender. I know you must away before the end of day For your rebel heart you must depart 
thing in traditional song is if it's a good song it goes into the tradition and people sing it and they keep singing it Gemma has been writing songs and poetry, taking inspiration from her own lived experience. I wrote a spoken word piece called I Was Never Young But I'm Not Yet Old and it was basically talking about the frustrations within working class life cycles um, and that that idea of feeling, of never feeling young even when you're not old yet. Um, you know, we see a lot of old souls, a lot of children with weights on their shoulders that they shouldn't have. I was telling that story into my phone in a moment of frustration and I thought, okay, I want to create a piece of music around this just for myself. It was never meant to be released. And I chose the harp as an instrument. I was producing it, so I don't play the harp. And I just asked on Facebook, does anybody know an Irish harpist? And someone tagged this girl in it. And we ended up really gelling. Gemma connected with Roisin Berkeley, an Irish traditional harpist. I was never young, but I'm not yet old. I've seen more deaths than anyone I know And I have more love than I ever let myself show Everyone around me is stuck in the cycle Of trying to get by and trying to provide For too many things they can't manage or control And it gets so stressful now it's taking its soul And now we're even starting to turn on each other Because we're too stressed out to see that strength is in numbers How long we have to fight before we appeal the eight? And when can we be certain there'll be food on the plate? Every forehead I look at reads lines of sorrow, just pushing through the day to make it to tomorrow. She grew up playing traditional music, so we both come from a background of um, t- t- singing stories um, and playing instruments through passed down tradition, not through any kind of uh, you know scores or notation. And um, that's kind of our second language, you know. And it just feels, it feels very, like I say, affirming and just uh, organic and it feels right, you know. And I feel privileged to get to play with a harpist like Roshi and her, her harp also came from her granddad who was, a, who was also a musician. She's from the West and I'm from the East and there's this really kind of nice, um, nice connection between us when we play. I feel like in her instrument alone, there's history coming from our background. It's like she's a, a country girl from Mayo and I'm a city girl from Dublin. We couldn't be any more different. But when we both use our instruments, it's like we never didn't exist together, you know. To get to stand up and proudly sing a song in, in one of the most like historical buildings you know, the National Concert Hall is hugely associated with classical music. The juxtaposition of that is amazing. And for, for me, as a, a musician who gets the chance now, because I say get the chance, because I've always been speaking about my community and my area, but I think there's a trend now where people are, are open to hearing about it. We weren't open to really hearing accents like ours or backgrounds like ours or, you know. And now we are, and, and it means so much to me as a musician from Sherry Street who still goes on about all the injustices to be asked to do this and to stand in the National Concert Hall and perform this song it just gives me goosebumps you know what I mean John's life as a singer began decades ago he has written by his own reckoning 
210 songs. I think that I write songs to give me permission to sing. I think if I wasn't writing songs, I wouldn't be a singer, you know, because I don't think, like, I'm blessed with an amazing, incredible, you know, voice of any kind. But I do love to sing, so I think that I write in order to sing, if that makes any sense. And then when I write, I just try to write, you know, whatever I can, really. But I did find that, like, you know, when I was about 21 or 2 years old, when I was trying to write rock songs and stuff, I did find that this song landed on my lap, which was a song about Cork called Princess Street, which paints um, Cork in a very poetic and beautiful light, and it seemed to come to me. I spent Friday just counting the time that up in a tower I heard some bells chime I saw a great goldfish take wing like a swan and told me that Saturday wouldn't be long And oh will you meet me on Saturday night We'll dance in the shadows between the street lights Between these two rivers I know where we'll meet on Princess Street And oh will you meet me on Saturday night We'll dance with your anchors all bathed in moonlight between these two rivers, I know where we'll meet on Princess Street. But I think it had something to do with my father, who died when I was very young, because Princess Street is where they lived. So I think that it was a certain kind of a, in, in my imagination, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, my father moved from the other side, or, you know, you know, spoke to me from the, beyond the grave or anything. But I think it's something in my subconscious. Over his career, John has written scores of songs of places, towns, villages and townlands on the island of Ireland. Like over half of them have a geographical location. And it's something that I didn't ever set out to do. But it seems to happen naturally, you know. And it, there is an awful lot of songs like ballads I would have heard of as a child. There was a geographical sense of Ireland from song. You know, I mean, I suppose as a small boy, I was read Republican ballads, you know, you know, around the fireside in Bantry, like, and there was a big turf fire there, and they would sing, um, you know, Kevin Barry, and they would sing, If We Only Had Old Ireland Over Here. So I just feel hugely honoured to be part of this project, and knowing what I know about the 1798 songs, I can see that these songs could actually define what happened 100 years ago, you know, because most people have not read the treaty debates, and I was, like, totally surprised when I read them, like what people said, and I was totally surprised at what they didn't say. Maya Sophia has spoken before of being a young queer woman growing up in a very Catholic place. In her work, reimagining traditional folk with the electric guitar, sometimes with a harp, her diction is clear, her lyrics powerful. She looks to another real-life woman for subject matter, a woman whose story was brought to us first by Dr Angela Burke in her award-winning book, The Burning of Bridget Cleary. It's called The Wife of Michael Cleary. Bridget Cleary was a a woman that lived in Tipperary in the 1890s. Her husband, Michael, became convinced that she'd been switched with a fairy changeling and essentially murdered her under the guise of a sort of exorcism of the fairy changeling. And it's a really horrific and dark story that just, at the end of the day, it just makes me really sad. Like, But I was really intrigued by her story. And since since writing it, I've come to realise it's a story that lots of people have been really intrigued by. Her story has really like captured people's imaginations. Um, I've had so many conversations with her. I was, sorry, conversations about her. Sometimes I feel like I'm having conversations with her <laughs> after performing that song. And I think I wrote it when I was really angry. Maya Sophia wrote the song during the repeal debates on the referendum of the Eighth Amendment, which was voted on in 2018. And that was... The landscape of being a young woman in Ireland at that time was just constant anger. Like it was just like everywhere you went on like daytime TV, 
um, or on the radio or every, every conversation everywhere was like making women's bodies up for discussion like we had like male politicians just like openly talking about medical procedures on women's bodies on like primetime news or whatever as if that was a as if that was okay or as if that was their place to discuss and there was a real um feeling of like kind of testimony all the time like women were being forced to talk about things they'd gone through in order to be taken seriously and to have this law passed and that was the the world in which i i encountered bridget cleary's story and it was just came from such a place of anger at the lack of agency that women have had over their own bodies and obviously what happened to Bridget is like the most extreme case in that she was literally murdered um so yeah I just was I, I, I didn't even decide to write about her it just happened in a kind of like feverish storm and I've been carrying it with me ever since and he would look into Maya Sophia is constantly reading. She says her academic mind complements her creative mind, and vice versa. She is open about her interest in art and in life. She is inspired by the conversations women have together. She cares about the artistic spaces for those who have been sidelined. She has a tender core that is so evident when you meet her. Just caring to me is like kind of radical in a political sense in a world where you know care is not um recognized as important in a way or it's not it's not like paid work and you know it's we don't we don't live in a world where like care is prioritized if that makes sense so to me that's how I found a kind of strength even if it's at odds with the sort of the, the Countess Markovic sort of strength that's very visible and involves um, political activism and revolvers. Is Kathleen Clark central enough to the events of the so-called treaty debates to be considered a main protagonist when there were over a hundred men who voted and just six women in the second Doyle Aaron eligible to cast their vote on the Articles of Agreement? This is something I want to find out from Karen Casey, who has chosen Kathleen Clark as the person she wants to write on. I don't think I, sh- I need to uh, defend why I didn't sing about the men. I think I've I've spent a long time singing that narrative without even thinking of it, and uh, so I think it's a, a step forward, a progressive step to be more inclusive and have a robust and rounded view of that time period. It is clear that family connections inform and infuse Karen's writing and singing. Well, I didn't really know a lot about the treaty debates. Uh, you know, I hadn't read them. Um, I did gallantly try to read through them. There were, it was a lot. I did know a fair bit about the Countess and I knew a little bit about Kate O'Callaghan because of my reading on Madge Daly from Limerick. While researching her great-grandmother, Karen found her name on a list of common Amon from Limerick. In order to understand more, this led Karen to reading about the experiences of women active in Limerick. Madge Daly, who was president of Common Amon in Limerick, and her sister, Kathleen Clark, TD, widow of 1916 leader Tom Clark. I had read a fair bit about Kathleen Clark, who I just think is such an extraordinary woman. So she kind of called out to me, really, of all the, the women who were in the debates. You know, I've read her memoir, which I love, and I think is one of the clearest 
memoirs that we have about the period. And I think she's really good at getting the political facts, but also the reality of her life, what it was like for her. I liked her defiance. We speak of Kathleen Clark's memoir, the raw honesty of her account. She also uh, was pregnant at this time and she hadn't told Tom Clark because she didn't want to falter, as she says, in front of him because she felt if she broke down, he would break down. And so then then she lost that baby um, and then she had to, you know, endure raid after raid upon her house. She says she was afraid only once, which I find just incredible. She said it was when they came, I think it was in the 1920s or 21, and they came and they hinted that they might take the eldest son. And they were looking at him to see did he have any facial hair and was he old enough for him to, to be taken. And I thought, oh my God. You know, and she knew she had heard and read reports of the younger boys being taken out and shot and placed up against a wall. Jesus, if any of us had to live that life and how she managed to keep going. And this was running a house, minding her three boys, um, and then going and running the dependents fund, you know, making sure other people were looked after. Um, and then her work were coming on and the women. I think some of the discussions around the centenary celebrations can be divisive, but for me, a lot of these women worked together, not just for the women's vote and the suffrage movement, but they really tried to find a way to have dialogue and to come together. So I find that very inspiring, and I really love that they used their art to do it, I suppose that would resonate with me as, as an artist. For Karen, her guide is the songbook of the period, the contemporary poems, there she finds the words they used, phrases. This is for me such a rare opportunity to be so close to the process, the craft of songwriting. Karen shows me her song on Kathleen Clark as it's evolving how she takes on the sources, shapes them. One of those she uses to inform her writing is the novelist and playwright and poet Winifred Mary Letts. I took a little bit of a line from Winifred Mary Letts. If love of mine could witch you back to earth, it would be when the bat is on the wing. And I took that as the first line. If I could bring you back to earth one more time, my love, it would be when the swallow is out upon the wind above. Winifred Mary Letts writing these extraordinary poems that are anti, anti-war and talking about poor people being used as fodder for the canon in the First World War in particular. And just how uh, uh, Dora Seegerson, I'd never heard of any of these women. So that's been a gift for me to uh, read their words a hundred years on and see how powerful they are and how resonant they are even today. They still... Still very uh, truthful, I think, um, what they're saying. Maya Sophia has spoken of what she calls the political undercurrent of her songs and that feminism is a huge part of her life at writing. When making her selection of someone to write on, it seems as if her selection is almost predetermined. Being an Irish feminist, you're always kind of working out from under Countess Markovic in a way. (laughs) Why did I choose the Countess. I think I just felt a real pull towards her. She really like piqued my interest and I was um, interested in the in her position as a revolutionary and an artist and a a daughter and a a woman I suppose but there's lots of aspects of her life that um, are kind of almost at odds with with each other like I, in her letters to her sister, Eva Gorbuth, I I was really moved by the way like flickers of kind of like domestic everyday life feminine women's issues are, would be and like domestic things would be interwoven between like revolutionary statements and questions about art and but there's so many things about her that really interested me.
This centenary commission seems ideal for this young Irish woman. It feels almost wrong to identify with her in any way because she's this huge um, figure to all Irish women. Like she's, um, you know, she's kind of like shadows over all of us that are involved in in art or politics um, or just as, as feminists, I suppose. I, yes, I suppose I found that challenging, but I I was able to relate in a way to her, I suppose, kind of like, almost like a sense of doubt, like when, when her vulnerability, when I was able to kind of like engage with her vulnerability as like a woman and a person, as well as like a political figure and this hugely important person in, in history. Writing of women who lived once in a previous generation has been Maya Sophia's subject matter for some time now. Her biographical take that became a song. Edie Sedgwick is one such composition, the American actress and model, the glittering it girl whose life was cut short in her 20s, about the age that Maya Sophia is now. There's myself that I just exist in my private world and then there's a part of me that is on the stage or in the songs that feels sometimes, that feels so much more like me and then other times it feels totally separate. But the deal that you make with yourself when you put something out into the world is that you're exposing a part of yourself and making yourself vulnerable in that way and that can be simultaneously very empowering and very weird and slightly strange and can make you a little self-conscious or anxious as well. John Spillane speaks as he sings with layers. Layers of understanding. He too began with the primary source. You know, what I did was I went for a big walk around Dublin and I bought this book in my favourite bookshop, which is on Duke Street, Dublin. It's called Ulysses Bookshop or Cahoyne, used in secondhand books. And they have a bargain basement where they have a lot of Irish language stuff. But this is um, Doyle Aaron, session, December 1921 to January 1922. And uh, I couldn't believe they had it. And uh, it's of the time and like it smells of 1921. You know, it has, it has the paper. So really, I'm just still reading and reading and reading, you know, and just trying to absorb. And I'm thinking now maybe my song with Moira McSweeney and Michael Collins, it could possibly be a duet. thought of Michael Collins immediately, you know, being from County Cork. And then I thought of Maura McSweeney and I thought of the idea of perhaps a dialogue between, you know, you could in one song you could have both opposite points of view, you know, and both from Cork as well. But I mean, Collins obviously was selling the treaty. She spoke for two hours and 40 minutes against the treaty. Gemma Dunleavy lives and walks the streets where this revolution was played out. And that sense of place she has will be a large part of her contribution. My first reaction when I was asked to do this commission was, I kind of just thought, oh my God, my Uncle Jimmy is going to be so proud, you know, because he really loves Irish history. And before I even thought of what it was going to entail, before I even thought if I 
really wanted to do this. And before I even got to that question in my head, it was like, there's no way I can't do this. You know what I mean? Like, it's a little bit out of my comfort zone, as in I'm used to just speaking from my own mouth. You know what I mean? But I love storytelling and I also love delving into other people's stories and and you know the EP that I wrote was written from the perspective of six different stereotypes that I grew up around so I had to step into other shoes so that's something that I love doing but the weight that this holds is so important to me that I felt very proud to be asked and there was no way that I wasn't going to do it you know so I'm going to embody Cattle Brew and it's very hard when you're choosing whose story you want to tell, stepping into a character without fully knowing his story from the other side, not from the, the side that history tells us, but from the personal side that we might get from um, his family and stuff like that. For Gemma, I arranged for her to meet his grandson, also Cahill. He tells us that Luke Kelly gets the name right in his version of the Foggy Jew. It's Cahill Brew. That's what he was known as to his friends and family. Luke Kelly, from the Dubliners, was from Sheriff Street too. When I meet Gemma, she's wearing a top that has Sheriffer embossed on it, the local name for her area that she promotes with pride. She has selected someone from her home place and she will make his story her own, in her own way. I feel like, you know, being from a working class background in an area that has buildings grown grown up around it like weeds at the moment, you know. Being from a community that was kind of completely ravaged by the heroin epidemic in the 90s and the 80s and being the ones that were blamed for that, um, you know, little to no stimulants around us and we're still seeing the remnants and the skeletons of the heroin epidemic walk around us today and we're still being blamed on it, you know. There's a kind of a fire within me and a fight within me um, against those structures in place. So I really, really relate to the, the fight that Cal Brew would have had to put up, although it's a very different time. That's where I understand his stubbornness and his strong will, you know, and I feel like that's going to really help me to write the song because I have a deep understanding for that. At the end of the day, like, I'm not in 1916, but if it came down to it, I would die for my community and the people around me because I see the struggle they go through every single day, you know, from the media, from the authorities, from politics. And um, any chance I have to speak up for that, I will, you know. And for me, if I can create a song that sonically grabs people's attention and further than that, tells the story of Cahill Brewer in a way that is not something that we read in history books or, you know, not not information that you can easily find online, but it's something that gives maybe another shade of colour to his uh, personality or story that is hopefully found in the stories that we'll get from his, his nearest and dearest. I suppose for the song to resonate with people without them realising firstly the deeper meaning of the song. If they connected with it on a surface level first, enough for them to look into the story and then to find that deeper layer where they are interested in Calbrew's story, uh, that would really mean to me job done. This was the third of the Manol 100 Centenary Podcasts, part of the Decade of Centenaries programme, the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltox, Sports and Media. This episode was made with the assistance of the National Concert Hall. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and will tune in again.